0: Hello, you're listening to What I Did Next from ANT Media. I'm Malak Fouad, your host. What I Did Next revolves around people's personal and professional crossroads and looks at those trajectories from key pivot points. My guests are multilingual, multicultural, with roots in the Middle East. They're engaged, curious, and passionate about knowledge and strive to make a difference in the world. On today's episode, I chat with Lebanese designer Neda Dibbs, Neda specializes in product and furniture design and works across complementary disciplines like craft, fashion and interiors. She is of Syrian-Lebanese descent and comes from a family of merchants who established themselves in Japan in the early 20th century, like modern-day Silk Road traders. Her work is infused with imagery from the Far East and her own aesthetic and taste is one of minimalism and moderation. The less is more approach to living. With a passion for craftsmanship, Nada has made it her mission to find innovative ways to keep alive the Levantine traditions of woodwork making. Her meticulous attention to detail allows traditional craft techniques to be showcased in modern products that reflect the way we live today. Nada Dibb's studio has collaborated with a broad spectrum of brands, from luxury names such as Fratelli Rossetti, Louis Vuitton, and Porsche, to more accessible brands such as IKEA and Converse. We discuss the many twists and turns in Neda's life and the journey she took to become a bespoke luxury Middle East brand. We begin today with the books, music and film that inform Neda's cultural world and give us a glimpse into what moves her. Some of her answers surprise me, but highlight the immense and deep influence that Japan holds over her. Okay, so we'll
1: start with film. So what I really love, like on top of my head, is a film called uh, In the Mood for Love by Wong Kar-wai. I don't know if you know it. It's a Hong Kong film. And uh, I guess it's because I grew up in in Asia and Japan. And so for me, uh, you know, having that Asian culture, it's very uh, um, attractive for me. So it's a very cool film. If anyone has uh, not seen it. So it's a film that takes place in Hong Kong in 1962, which is the year I was born. And what's really interesting about it is that um, you can see the film many times and see different aspects of it. So in one time, you know, it's this beautiful Chinese woman wearing beautiful Chinese dress, but each time, every scene, she has a different dress on. So you can just look at fashion or you can look at interiors that, you know, there's this really beautiful mood of China and, and I mean, Hong Kong in and, and the 60s. And, and the story itself is amazing. It's about two couples, uh, two people, one male, one female, who are in a uh, kind of uh, hotel, um, well, in the 60s. And the um, man, his wife is not with him. And the woman, is, her husband is not with her but it seems like they are having an affair somewhere else (laughs) and they find that out.
0: Oh, you mean the other cub, the the husband and wife who are not there? They're not
1: there. Oh, how
0: interesting. And they're having a affair in Japan.
1: So it's really cool. (laughs) How interesting. (laughs) And what language is it in? It's in Chinese. But then, uh, you know, yeah, it's a foreign film. I I love foreign films, yeah. Yeah. And then the other... Interesting, I'm going to look it up. Look it up, it's quite cool. And then the rest is like really anime. I mean, I'm very obsessed with Japanese anime.
0: Can you explain what anime is for people who don't know?
1: Yeah, so it's basically cartoons, you know. It's Japanese uh, uh, cartoons. But what's really interesting about anime is when you really study what they're about... Most of the stories are spiritual stories. So they could be made for young children, but even a grown up would understand there's a spiritual message behind it. And then oftentimes it's about, um, you know, feminine heroines. You know, it's funny because in Japan it's quite a patriarchal so the commun- you know, society. So for the woman to be a heroine, you know, she's the one who is the winner or beats, you know, beats this or that. That's very cool. And then the third thing that is really strong is it's about fantasy. So anything you cannot do in this earth, you can have it in anime. And I think the Japanese have pushed their boundaries, you know, to see how far they can go in their creativity and fantasy. And I think today the youth is obsessed with anime. And I see young people here in Beirut who just want to travel to Japan you know, just to watch uh, anime and reach, uh, go to that culture, because behind what you see is like this world of fantasy. And I think today people, that's what they want. You know, they, they're into virtual worlds. And there's a huge escapism element to it. I right? think so. I think so. This, definitely yeah, with yeah. Japanese society, I think that's how it started, because you know it's so controlled. Everything is so controlled.
0: Yeah. Interesting. And what about books? Are you a reader, Nada? So I'm not a big reader because I
1: need so much uh, attention and quiet time around me. And I'm very much the person that's always creating things in my head. So every time I read, you know, I, I go off on tangents in my mind. <laughs> but if I were to say what is like, you know, some distinct books, I Right now, I've been very much the last few years into like a lot of spiritual books. So The New Earth or Untethered Soul, things like that. These, you know, mm. they take you to this other dimension. I think we have, you know, I've been, I think I would diagnose myself as a hypersensitive human being. So I've always been in touch with my intuition. And I think that now through these readings, I'm starting to understand that there's more than what we see.
0: It's a very interesting um, area of study, actually, because it's infinite. And you have so many ways that you can approach it as well. Yeah. And I think everyone everyone can get some benefit from it.
1: For sure. I think so. And I think that's the future. So other than that, like normally normal books, <laughs> I, what I do is whenever, <laughs> whenever I travel, I always read the book from an author from that country. Oh, really? Yeah, when I went to India, I read The White Tiger, for example, or The God of Small Things, you know. um, That's one of my favorite books, actually, The God of Small Things. That's
0: a very nice way, actually, of... of, Of doing your research about a country, actually. Yeah, because you get immersed in that culture and you start understanding. Because a, a travel guide will never give you that that uh, nuance. Yeah, yeah. So absolutely. that's that's kind of the way
1: I read. Yeah, that's
0: a, that's a really interesting way of doing it. I'm going to try that. Um, I I'm desperate to visit Japan. Um, I think I'm going to try your technique of reading um, a book by a Japanese author. I think I, I can recommend yes, you some I'm, books. I will.
1: It's amazing. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Yeah. I will do that. So what about music, Nada? Does that play a part in your everyday life? Yes, and to the
1: point where I'm now uh, trying, I have a very bad voice and I'm trying music uh, singing lessons <laughs> today, I, Are you? I feel like every year I make a kind of like resolution, like what kind of year it's gonna be. And this year I decided it's going to be a, a year a year of vibrations, sound and music. And uh, so I like house music, you know, I'm not that young. Do you? I I would never have guessed that. uh, I love house music. I love the way they layer things. Uh, And I love a lot of spiritual music, you know, these repetitive mantras. They calm me down. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they take me to another place, you know, and I love that idea. But, yeah, house music, I I actually like that a lot.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, and tell me, did, the, did your idea of learning to do, to get more involved in music this year, is that, a, is that a reaction to the pandemic or is that something that you've wanted to do for a while? I think, uh, you know, yeah, I suppose maybe when I
1: started to hear audiobooks or, you know, not audiobooks, but like podcasts, and I noticed that sometimes it's not what you say, but it's the way you say it and it's your voice. And I think voice plays a big part in sending out a good message. So if you have a great message and you have a really bad voice, I don't think people will listen. When I'm feeling good and I'm speaking from my you know, belly, then my voice carries and the message
0: carries better. So I feel like it's about controlling my voice. Yeah. And I think the more important element is the actual message. So you've got the message now. You just have to figure out the delivery, and I think you're, you'll be fine. Yeah,
1: that's uh, that's the case. Yeah, I'm very shy, and you know, and I'm also that's part of my Japanese upbringing. You know, I had like, I would say my parents are Lebanese Syrian, so we have a very as upbringing wise, it's a bit. There's a ser- strong Syrian approach, and which is a lot of understatedness, and you know, being yes. like uh, reserved. Less is more. Less is more, and yeah. in Japan, it's the same. So. You know, it's so hard for me to speak out. I'm very, very quiet and reserved. I prefer to listen than to talk. And now I'm put in a position, life put me in a position where I'm supposed to speak and, <laughs> and express, and I do have messages to give out. So I have to, you know, work on it.
0: So I know that you were born in Le- in Lebanon, but that you you grew up and you spent all of your childhood in Japan. But what I'd like to start off with before you we talk about the the duality of identity, which I think we're going to go into quite a bit, and the concept of the other and so on, is what was it? What is it? Because it's clearly having a huge influence on you. It's it's constantly a place of inspiration for you. What is it about Japan that's so magical for you?
1: Mm, I would say uh, because I was a quiet child, you know, and uh, very much of an introvert. You know, I was like very much of an observer. And I think the Japanese in general are are introverts, too. They don't speak. It's more about what you don't say that counts. It's not what you say that counts. And so this aspect of just, you know, feeling, it's more about feeling rather than uh, saying or talking. And so there's something magical and spiritual about that. I think it's just that they live their spirituality in everyday life, the Japanese, you know, like, so uh even the way they eat you know you have to eat with mindfully uh you don't have to talk much when you're like they can sit together two people without saying much to each other and they're fine with it you know in our part of the world we would not be fine we need to fill, fill, no, fill we need to be, and be loud and noisy <laughs> completely <Yeah. laughs> so but to be honest being uh, growing up there i almost felt like a little bit alien because my parents tried to keep you know our culture in our household But the moment we stepped out of the house, um, you know, we're with a lot of foreigners, you know, like Japanese and Chinese. And and then my school was an international school. So we had a lot of Europeans, Indians. So there was this, you know, dichotomy. So it wasn't that pleasant growing up. I was very confused. Mm -hmm. I didn't know where I belonged. Mm -hmm. It's only after the fact, looking back, how I realized, and really through the work I do, I realized that I actually have been so influenced. So I think a lot of people, when they meet me and they get to know me, they tell me, Nada, you know, you're quite Japanese in your mind. And so I must must have really been brought up the Japanese way, you know, without realizing.
0: I think as well, you know, uh, um, uh, as children or as teenagers, so much of our influence is from our peers, mm. um, and we, you know, we always assume that our parents are so influential, and of course they are. But I think the peers and the and your environment and and you, what you're exposed to and what you're interacting with has such a massive influence on you on on your on your way of thinking. And it's it seems to be with you that that's really rubbed off. So
1: what was really uh, important, uh, like, was a search for me was that. I just always felt that you know I didn't understand why there were so many differences between people you know like why does this person hate this person why and it was always something that really bugged me I was like there must be something in common with everybody you know like and I would I would just observe and find ways of seeing common common elements between people and uh, you know I really just found that out like 20 years ago when I started making furniture because I'm like always. I thought that we had to always make a choice, you know. Like uh, I had to be either an Arab or a Japanese, but I couldn't be both. I didn't know that there was an option of being both. Yeah,
0: but I think you only come to that realization with a lot of time, probably. Um, you know, I think everyone has that moment of massive confusion where you try and be one or the other, and then you realize actually. You can be both, and you and maybe in in Japan you're more Lebanese, and in Lebanon you're more Japanese. <laughs> true, yeah. You know, you're you're always more of the other in the other place. That's so true. That's it's so strange. true. Yeah, it's strange. So you you were in Japan until what age, Nada? So until like seventeen, 18, until I went to university,
1: and then uh, so my parents first sent me to Lebanon to AUB, and it was really during a war, and they were they didn't want to keep me in Japan. They're a little conservative. They got worried that I'll marry a Japanese man. <laughs> and then, <laughs> yeah, they didn't want me to go to America because, you know, America is all about sex and drugs. <laughs> So I ended up. They're like all the stereotypes, yeah. And then they're
0: like, okay, go back to Beirut. Maybe you'll meet a husband or something, you know. So you you were at AUB, and and you you did meet a husband at AUB in the end. I did meet a husband at the end. So I chose <laughs> I chose the one person that they would probably rebel
1: against the most. <laughs> I was. Oh rebelling. really? How I funny! Was, I was rebelling. I think you know. I didn't want to go to Beirut. I I really did not relate to the Arab world. So I was completely. Yeah. Like, um, I didn't have a good image of the Arab world.
0: I didn't like myself. But it's also very isolating when you don't have anyone else like you around you. That's it. I think I suffered from that, you know? And I, I still feel
1: like I don't, like, you know, I struggle with looking for people like me. That's why I'm very comfortable with TCKs, because we're all in the same boat. We're all, like, confused, you know? Like, we don't know who we yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we pride ourselves. Now it's we learned. I learned that it's an asset but as a child when you grow up it's it's very um it's a hurtful thing you know for a child Mm. so in a way I had to accept that I was in Lebanon in AUB but it turned out to be a real blessing in disguise because it was so fun (laughs) like I didn't think that Beirut was that fun you know I I'm like these are Arabs these are Muslims they're like so fun they're stylish they're fun. you know, I, I was totally mistaken, like, you know, I didn't even know that, uh, you know, how I thought about the Arab world and what the reality is was so different that, you know, in a way, many years later, I did decide to embrace that.
0: And so you, just to get the trajectory correct, you graduated and you got married right after college, Nada, is that right? Yeah. So I graduated
1: from a, with a business degree and I was not happy with the business degree. So I did, finally, you know, I pleased my parents with that. Then I moved to uh, and to study at the Rhode Island School of Design. So I did a second degree there. But I so I have a Bachelor of Business Administration. Then I got two more degrees at RISD. So I did a Bachelor of Fine Art and a Bachelor of Interior Architecture.
0: For the people who don't know, who are listening, uh, the Rhode Island School of Design is one of the best design schools in the world. And it's um uh, incredible, very prestigious, Yes, very prestigious school. I feel like it was like the passport to the world. It's like when you go to Harvard. And I'm sure now that you're a business owner, um, the business degree that you did at the beginning is handy as well. Uh, it had its use and it, you probably, you know, at the time you regretted doing it, but I'm sure now you realize actually that was a very important thing to have in your back pocket.
1: In a way, yes, but I think the business mindset also comes from my family, because they are like they don't get design, you know. So they would say like, "So uh, where's the money? We're not we're seeing you working and working. Where's the money?" And,
0: and I keep telling them, "It takes time, Mama. It takes time, Boba, You know." Because you're from a you're from a classic merchant family, Completely. Right? This is why they, they emigrated to Japan. to Japan, and yeah, and they're yeah. in the
1: textile business. So with textiles. You sell rolls and rolls of fabric, you know, and for them, like one piece of furniture, you know, what does that mean? For, but then over, <laughs> over time, people started to ask them, are you Nada's mother? You know, are you Nada's father? Yeah. And so yeah, this is yeah. where they kind of like uh, understood. <laughs> actually, when I look at my whole family and extended family, I'm actually the only one that went off on my own. And I guess, you know, there's that poem, The Road Less Traveled. <laughs> and uh, I think I actually took that road less traveled.
0: So after RISD, you were uh, you stayed in the U.S. a bit? Yeah, I stayed in the U.S. So my ex-husband went on to study at
1: Cornell to do his Ph.D. at the Cornell University. So Ithaca, you know, it's a very progressive place, you know, and, um, uh, you know, it's really the little apple. You had... There, the farmer's market, and there was this real spiritual movement also going on there. And, and then I thought, if I stay too long in America, maybe, you know, I'll lose track of my identity. So I told my ex, I think maybe we should move to London. And his parents lived there. So I thought, at least they, maybe I can see, you know, get together with an Arab community who speak English. I got a license to do interior design. It was the first license that they ever had. And I passed the test and I was so proud. And the the time we moved to London, there was a huge recession and all these American firms were laying off people. They were closing their companies. And I was like, oh my God, what do I do with this license? I have this, <laughs> this license and I can't do anything about it. And meanwhile, I've always liked, I was in Ithaca. I had on the weekends, I was making furniture because I didn't like what I saw. And I thought maybe I can just make some furniture for my apartment in London. So I started to go around looking for furniture. And what I noticed that furniture in London at that time in the nineties was mostly antiques. There wasn't that much contemporary. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, wait, I need, where do I get furniture? So I started to to design my own And, and I met a woodworker, a young man who was quite, you know, amazing. So whatever I drew, he made for me. And, uh, and then, uh, but what was interesting about London is that everywhere I go, wherever I wanted to buy furniture, the salespeople will always talk about the craft techniques. And, uh, you know, uh, what is, um, you know, uh, 19th century, 18th century. uh, And I realized then the value of craft and how how you know and the value of heritage they were so proud of of their craft and identity and heritage and you know it stuck in my head and I started to work also with like creating oh I got pregnant with my first son and I was like okay I want to get some nice furniture but everything looked so antique so I designed a kid's you know bedroom set (laughs) and I used the craft of marquetry but in a contemporary way and and then some of my friends are like oh we love this uh, you know it's really beautiful so i started to make furniture for for everybody in london that i knew that were ready to have babies or kids
0: and is this and is this with the arab community nada or is this with with a wider group because the Arab community is very good about word of mouth yeah. in London. So definitely is that who you were yeah. with? De- yeah.
1: Definitely the Arab community. Then I did a show. I created a collection. So I did some shows and then it extended to like a bit of foreign community, but it was really word of mouth. I mean, I was so busy.
0: And and so after so the UK part of your life was what, three, four years? No, it was seven
1: years. And then you know, my relationship with my husband kind of started to deteriorate. And by this point, you had two boys, right? By this point, I had two boys who were four and six. And my ex husband had moved to Beirut. And uh, I decided that I will uh, uh, take the kids to see their father, but not knowing that the jurisdiction of of Lebanon takes over the jurisdiction of the UK. So, to make the long story short, I ended up in Beirut. Well, my ex-husband ended up having the kids, and I
0: ended up uh, on my own in Beirut. We'll continue our chat with Neda right after this short break. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, actor and comedian Rami Yusuf told me about his thoughts on cancel culture, and ex-anchor and now-author Hela Gorani told me her thoughts on the future of journalism. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes. So subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two week free trial. And now back to the show. Welcome back. You're listening to what I did next. Before the break, Nada Dibs started to get into her personal journey and how her life pivoted when she moved to Beirut. It was completely unexpected. Uh, I, the idea was the kids will
1: grow up in London. Uh, they will go to the... I had, it ho- I had it all planned. And, you know, they say... You had a plan. Yeah, like God yeah. planned... Uh, you- you plan and God laughs. <laughs> I don't know. God decides. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, I had planned that they go to the American School of London, then they go to Imperial College, and we're going to stay yeah. in this place. And you know, I had it. You all had planned. it mapped out. I had it all yeah. mapped out, and in one instance, uh, everything just fell fell apart.
0: So this is a huge a huge moment in your life that, of change. This was like unexpected change completely yeah. because I. I thought that,
1: uh, yeah, I thought I meant well, you know, for the kid. I didn't know about anything about this part of the world. And I also think if I look even one step back, when you say things like when you're young, like, I don't want to live in the Arab world or I hate it or this, things like that, it haunts you later in life. You know, <laughs> they say, beware of yeah. what you ask for or what you Absolutely. say. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think this was one of these things where God put me to a test. I mean, you know, the universe put me to a test and they're like, okay, you said you didn't want the Arab world. Here you are. I mean, I could have left the country. I could have left the country, uh, and gone back to London, but it didn't make sense anymore. So I decided that I will be there to see the kids over the weekend, but it was a big, big, big shock because, um, when you're, once you become a mother, I think, you can't take that away i mean it's like these kids go through your body so you know like there's a connection and so the connection was cut and yeah and this uh, like i underestimated motherhood like today i realize how important it is but i spent many years denying it i was like i don't understand these people who think motherhood is so important. Look at me. I can live without kids. But that wasn't the truth. I think I was not admitting the truth. You know, I was. Of course. Yeah, but I think it it was just too difficult
0: to admit. I mean, it's pretty horrific being, you know, denied uh, your children. So. Yeah, it's a very difficult. But I, I, I'm in strong admiration of you that you you stayed there in order to be near them, even though it was a difficult situation. It was so tough. I, you know. It's a mother, but it's a mother's instinct, isn't it? You th- you're saying you're a bad mother. On the contrary, that's a typical thing any mother would do. Yeah, you know. So I
1: thought I so my grandmother was eighty five at the time. So my grandmother who had passed away, and she was like, "Nada, look." Because she had the she had the ability to see long term, like she's 85 years old. She's seen, she was born in 1918, you know, so um, she's seen it all. And she says, "Nada, look, look, don't worry. The kids, with a blink of an eye, you're gonna wake up and suddenly see them grown up, and they're gonna be coming to you with, uh, you know, uh, with pleasure." And so she said, "Just go, work, have fun." travel, enjoy life. And I'm like, how yeah. can you tell me this? How can you tell me this? Yeah. You know, She yeah. goes, just don't say no to parties. Like she just loved life. Just go. And, and then she goes, you got a degree. Go and work. So I spent, I remember like six months every day, because I didn't know many people in Beirut. Most of my uh, friends from the AUB days were, um, uh, not around, or I just needed space, you know, it was a very difficult time. I would just go swimming and come back and spend the day on my own. And I started to ask this very simple question What will make me happy? It was so simple. What will bring a smile to my face? So,
0: and how old were you, Nada, then?
1: I was At 38. this point in your
0: life, what age were you? 38. 38, yeah. okay, right. And every single day, I would ask
1: that question. And every single day, I don't have an answer. And then, after maybe six months, I had this vision, which was very strange. Uh, I think I was swimming, probably while I'm swimming. Um, I had this vision of myself, and you know, at that time, I was a very dependent wife, so I never had my own mobile or my own computer. I always used my husband's, you know, because I don't know. I was just a nice, loyal wife, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, so I remember in this vision, I saw myself with a computer, a laptop, flying to Paris, and I was showing a client a design. I turned closed down, closed my computer, and I saw myself flying to New York City, opening my computer and showing a design. And then I somehow woke up from this dream. Okay, how and funny then just that. So you saw it all mapped out in I front of you. I saw it mapped out.
0: Yeah. Like, but
1: if you saw the situation I was in, I'm so far from that image, you know. Yeah. Like, what are they? What is this dream telling me about? But one week later, I had the royal family, uh, someone from the royal family of Jordan, uh, contacting me. They saw my children's furniture in um, in Beirut. uh, Sorry, in London. It was Princess Rida Salem. I don't know if you know her, Rida Talal. And she told me, you know, when when I get pregnant, I'm gonna contact you. And uh, lo and behold, and she, did.
0: <laughs> she contacted me <laughs> one went. week after this vision. And, and um, you know, I was like so excited. But you, you had a very, you had a prestigious benefactor uh, launching your, yes. your career in Lebanon. Yeah. yeah. So,
1: you know, people in Beirut started to ask, wait, who's who's Natadev? She's doing something for the royal family. You know, I started to become known for children's furniture. Yeah. And then... Yeah. Uh, word of mouth and one day um and then it somehow it hit me that you know this is something i really love and i was thinking okay i don't have a chance to bring up my kids but uh okay this becomes my sensitive moment because i can't even say it 20 years later but you know this is a time where i say if i can't bring up the kids maybe i can use my time for something you know, they can be proud of. Like, I didn't waste my time. I think this was so much in my subconscious that I had this drive. I was like a bulldozer, you know? I would start yeah, early yeah. morning,
0: and I was like, you know... So your your energy, all your energy went into this. All my energy yeah. went into that. I yeah. sometimes even forgot that I had kids. You
1: know, like, I completely forgot. It just became <laughs> such a drive. My family yeah, was upset yeah. with me. They're like, what, where are you? We're not able to talk to you. And I realized that, uh, you know, when you're a mother, you want to give a lot of love. And when you don't have an outlet, you, know, you need an outlet. Like, so it has to go somewhere. And so in a way, my yeah. work became like a third child. You know, I just poured yeah. all my love into this. And so, yeah.
0: <laughs> and, now you're, and now I know your boys are adults now. What do they think of the business? They must be super proud, Nada. So the thing is that suddenly,
1: or when they turned like young young teenagers, they started to hear their friends' parents saying, oh, we have a piece of your mother's, you know, here in our house. And I started to realize that they recognized that I'm starting to become known. And, you know, and, and, you know, at that time, my whole drive, like, fell. I really suffered because I thought, okay, my goal is finished my goal was yeah, to get I've done it. it to get the recognition and now I have the recognition from my kids what what do I do with my business like that wasn't the whole point of my business was not to yeah, make money yeah. it was really about just getting that recognition for them to from, see you
0: for them to see you to, for, and to, for and them see to what see what you were doing yeah but you, but so, how do they perceive it now? I have a 26
1: year old and a 28 year old. My 28 year old is a into music. He's into music production, so he seems to be taking the creative route. But he's in his own world. The music world is, uh, yeah. you know, a reverse. They're up all night, very, sleep all yes, day. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But my 26 yeah. year old just popped the question last week. Uh, he's like, Mama, what do you think if I join you? I said. Oh, oh, okay. You know, for me, I never thought about a succession plan. And I thought, wait, that's very interesting, you know, because I didn't demand anything of them. And he's, you know, someone who studied finance and he's like, you know, He's young, and you
0: know I love the millennials. So, so his his uh, his interest is more on the on the business development side. Yes, exactly. And I'm like, and and that's an area you don't like anyway. (laughs) So that's great. (laughs) I'm like so
1: relieved, and I'm like, okay, Tamim, when are you going to quit your job? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, what's interesting about the fact that he said that was that all of a sudden my vision expanded. So all these things I wanted to do. So now I'm really about craft and heritage. It's about preserving our craft, preserving our heritage in a contemporary way. And, uh, you know, I've always wanted to create a foundation. I want to support the craftsmen, but I was, I'm so overwhelmed that I don't have time. But now that if he wants to take over the business side, then I'd be happy to
0: pursue. It frees you up. yeah, Yeah,
1: to pursue, you know, um, this mission, and it's not just made in Lebanon; it's made in the
0: Arab world. You've done some amazing collaborations. Um, you did Converse, Fratelli Rossetti, IKEA. Yeah. What do you get, Neda, in terms of as a creative person? What do you get? Uh, uh, what does What does it mean for you to do these collaborations with these these different brands? Because they're so they're so different. The brands you've worked with. You've worked with Jotun, the color yeah. mm-hmm. specialist. Right. Uh, Converse sneakers, Fratelli Rossetti, beautiful Italian Italian uh, shoes, IKEA—they're all very different. But what do you get out of it in terms of, um, you know, you yeah. know? How how does it? What does it matter yeah. to
1: you? So today, like for example, when people say, "Okay, you make furniture and home accessories," I actually say, "No, I'm I'm not just making that. I I'm actually I'm, I make a message, you know, and the message is about." Finding op- something that's very different and finding a an common element to it. So, for example, uh, you know the Japanese and Arab cu- uh, cultures. A lot of people see both in the same in the same piece that I make, or an old old technique versus a new technique, modern materials versus old materials. And so, with with brands, you know, here's IKEA that works on democratic design, and basically I do more like crafted high-end luxury product how can i actually take you know my philosophy and work with ikea so this challenge of of, of uh, bringing opposites or something so different and finding a common element is something that i i love to do and and that's that's what i like about what my work it's not really about making furniture it's, it's more about sending that message out. So the more collaborations I do, the more um, uh, I'm challenged.
0: It's a, in a way, Nada. It's another take on the duality of identity that we talked about earlier. I think so. Yes. Rather than look at the the difference of you know cultures, you're actually just bringing together different corporate cultures in a way and seeing how they can match. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's it. I remember you telling me going back to the IKEA story or you maybe I read it somewhere that you had actually contacted IKEA when you were much younger yes, as well yeah when I moved to Beirut and then this time around <laughs> yeah and then you ended up collaborating with them as an established uh, uh, yeah.
1: artist afterwards it's really funny because yeah when I moved to Beirut I was so depressed and I'm like what am I going to do I need a connection to the outside world and I decided to send a letter. It wasn't even a fax. I think it was a fax maybe at the time. I sent a typewritten letter to uh, yeah. IKEA, and I said, you know, I'm interested in um, in being your agent for the Lebanon for Lebanon. And they were politely. They sent a letter back, and I still have that letter, saying, unfortunately, someone else has taken over the agency for the country. But I still have this letter, and funnily, you funnily, have it. yeah. Uh, totally. It was so interesting that I I did this
0: project for them. It's really yeah, yeah. and you told them about this original yeah, uh, approach <laughs> that you had made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love these sorts of stories. I I wanted to ask you um, your thoughts on what's happening with um, the hereditary craftsmanship of the region and the um, the devastation in Syria. Um, how has that impacted your industry? um do are is there a new breed a new generation of craftsmen uh like there have been for hundreds of years that have passed from generation to generation you you're dealing with this on a day-to-day basis yeah. uh with your work do you feel that there is um that there is still this industry um or this uh cottage industry if you like um is it still prevalent? Is it is it um, is it in jeopardy? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Because it's it's very much a um, a symbol of who we are, uh, pre- predominantly in the Levant, much more than where I am in Egypt. But but in Egypt as no, well. In Egypt, so, yeah. But the Levant is yeah. But the Levant is known for it. You know the textiles and um, the mother of pearl and the, and the intricacy of of um, of the of the production. What are your thoughts on what's going to happen in the future in in the industry? So this
1: is like something that I really, really care about. I mean, it's such a good question that you're asking me. So when I started to do this furniture, again, you know, I was so not aware of what I was doing, but it created a a kind of ripple effect. You know, I I call this work (laughs) Neo-Arabian because when you think of it, Middle Eastern, when I came to Beirut 20 years ago and I saw the furniture, what what is furniture made in Lebanon? There was nothing. It was really the furniture that's made in Damascus for the Ottoman you know, Empire and the Ottoman Sultans. And that was stuck 200 years ago and people were still making the same things. No one dared to touch that craft. And here I come with completely no emotional attachment. And I'm like, why is it so, you know, Decorative, keep it simple. Can you do me a line of diamonds and mother of pearl? And this created this new look. And then I kept the form very simple. So the form rep- represents who we are. We're modern in our, in our clothing and the way we look, but we're intrinsically Arab. And I thought by creating contemporary forms, but keeping the craft, that's really the same, that reflects who we are today. And when I started to do, do this, I didn't realize that so many people were, like I gave permission to these craftsmen. Like it's okay to not do the old stuff. It's okay to actually come up with a new, you know, like change the old ways. And it created a ripple effect. And today, like you can go to Damascus and any workshop and they have pictures downloaded from my website. They're making furniture that looks like similar to mine. For me, at the beginning, it was like a bit offending, but then today I say, "Wow, at least they have something new to work on." And yeah, and it's flattering. Yeah, it is. I, I yeah, it is flattering. I mean, uh, the thing is, I'm always challenged with the more they imitate, the more I'm challenged with new ways of creating. Exactly. Yeah. But, yeah, but yeah. what's yeah. interesting is like I have a very. Uh, I've worked with many many craftsmen, but one Syrian family, they they know the way I think. So they keep sending me new ideas also. They're like, now we know what you think. What do you think of this technique? And what do you think of that technique? And then I take it. They still have that little traditional edge. And I take the technique and I I start coming up with new ways of making. And so um, I'm not worried about the future. But for me, what I feel today is that I would like to use my name uh, in order to promote this idea that craft and heritage is so important for us, keeping our identity, it's so important. It's like um, uh, Hermes, for example, for France. You know, It's all about craftsmanship and heritage. And they only work with their own people. They don't make their things in China, I don't think. I think, and this is the way I want to approach, like we need to yeah. look at how proud we should be of what we are. When I first came to Beirut, nobody wanted anything made in the Arab world. They were like, looked mm-hmm. down at it. So I think that I was able to at least revolutionize that,
0: So that let's move on uh, to the um, to your fantasy dinner party. Oh my God! Who would you include around <laughs> your dinner table? So this is a it's more, a fun one. It's, it's not. It's, don't don't overthink it. It's fun, and I went through
1: so many cycles of different people because the thing with me is that I um, I really like everybody, and I don't differentiate between like famous people and not famous people, etc. So. I, I really suffered from, from this uh, question. Uh, I had like a big birthday party when I turned 50 and I had about 450 people because I couldn't decide on wow. who to invite. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it was more about the groups of people. So yeah. one of the dinners I would say without naming specifics is like, I would always like to have a musician and always like to have an artist and a designer and a cook uh, and an architect and one spiritual person. So it doesn't matter who, you know, because this combination of creativity would, you know, bring out really great conversations. But if, yeah, yeah, if yeah. I were to add uh, somebody I would add, like my grandmother who who passed away in November at the age of 102. And to me, Mashallah. Yeah, she was amazing because even at that age, she really pushed independence and, uh, you know, I was married, I'm divorced, but then she's like, you know, Nada, don't bother to get remarried.
0: Enjoy your independence. <laughs> you know, she was so independent. Absolutely. Yeah. And she's like, you know, and, keep... for, and for that generation to, to think that way is very unusual. Yeah. So I really
1: like, she's great. She, she had friends at, you know, the age of seven, you know, so, uh, so she's crazy. Amazing. but another another dinner. If I were to have another dinner, because I can't stick to one dinner, uh, would be really uh, a dinner for people who have traveled to completely different cultures, like uh, you know the people who crossed the Silk Route, you know, who went to Shanghai hundred years ago, like like my family members. Um, you know what? You know, I was like so curious. How was it like entering like? Even my father, you know, he was in Japan at the age of 23. He doesn't speak the language. He doesn't know anything about this alien culture. And he actually managed to live there and build, you know, a business. And and to me, like meeting people like that from, you know, or, you know, people from
0: India who go to, I don't know. Brazil. I'm I'm one of those people, and, and you are as well. Yeah. So, yeah, so
1: that's it. My my dinners, yeah, like, um, we yeah. have many, many interesting different people, but it doesn't have to be that they're famous, you know? Like, I feel like yes, they need no, to... Yes, no, absolutely. Everyone has a story to tell.
0: This episode of What I Did Next was brought to you by ANT Media with me, Malak Fuad, and is co-produced by Sharag Desai. Please remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook for updates on the show. Just search for what I did next. I'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review in your podcast player. This boosts the show's ratings and helps us reach potential new listeners. Our next episode will be in two weeks' time, and we hope you can join us then.